Welcome to Growing You, part of LaGrave Avenue CRC's adult education program. As we return to our Growing You sessions, we are joined by Dr. Matt Bonzo. For the next two sessions, he will talk about eating and how it forms us. In this session, he talks about the history of food, starting from discovering fire and moving into our modern, efficient way of eating. And he also discusses food found in scripture. Now join us for Feasting, Fasting, and Food. Thanks, Emily, and thank uh, everybody for uh, coming today. As I uh, said to Emily, really, we should probably have a table set up where we're eating as we do this, because it's one thing to talk about food. It's another thing to eat food, right? So uh, let me just give you a kind of general outline of kind of what I hope to achieve. So my real purpose in this is to get to the point of talking about food, feasting, and fasting kind of in our contemporary practices, right? And what our faith has to say about it and how it informs our faith. Uh, but there's a bit of digging I have to do to get there. So we're going to do a couple kind of historical tracings, if you will. Uh, one of them is going to be just kind of the general accepted history of food that's out there. And so we're going to walk through that first in a very... Uh, 20,000 feet way, right? Uh, it's, it's not going to be a detailed history, and I acknowledge it's going to be a Western history, uh, but I'm not a historian. So uh, what I'm doing is trying to kind of just pick out significant events, if you will, uh, to mark how we've treated food culturally. And then I want to walk through today the Old Testament and some of uh, the descriptions of food and practices of eating that we get in the Old Testament one thing I'm not going to try to do is just reconcile those two histories. Uh, that would take a lot more work, I think, today than we have time for. So we're going to walk through some of the Genesis passage and forward in terms of how Israel treated food and how this idea of feast and fasting comes up uh, in the Old Testament and in the cultures around them. And then next week, what I want to do is bring that into the New Testament by focusing on, in particular, uh, the communion table. And really what I want to, the biggest point I want to argue about, I think, make an argument for next week, is that I think there's a real fear of us losing the significance of the communion table, not for necessarily theological reasons, but because we're actually losing table practices in daily life, right? That the way in which we're starting to eat and consume is becoming something disconnected from uh, the table at that point. All right, so that's my general kind of overview of what I want to get doing. I know I've got a lot of the info that I'm going to dump, so uh, at any point, feel free to slow me down, raise hand, ask questions, uh, yell at me, whatever, to go back. We'll go from there. So I want to talk, as I said, about a short history, uh, Western history of food. Uh, an interesting quote comes up in the book by this French uh, philosopher, medical doctor, Billiat Savion, uh, in a book that he writes late 1700s, where he says, tell me what you eat and I'll tell me who you are. And I think there's a real significance to that because if you think about what's the one activity that humans engage in nearly every day with some intentionality, it's eating and drinking, right? 
You could talk about the other basic drives, sex drives. Well, you're probably not engaging in those every day, even if you do so intentionally. Something like breathing, you're not thinking about, right? But in terms of actually feeding yourself and getting drink, that's something that you have to give some thought to, to engage in, right? What am I gonna prepare? Where am I gonna get it from? How are we gonna share it together? And so, in a way, there's no more human activity than eating and drinking, uh, if you will. And it's one that we don't give necessarily a lot of critical thought to, that we simply go through the habits that have been formed in us by you know, our families and the culture and society that surrounds us. And what I wanna kinda of step back and get us to see, at least to begin to see today, is indeed, we haven't always eaten the way that we eat today, right? That things have changed and that there's been a historical uh, sense of development that's going on. And I wanna link with that, not just what we eat, which has changed over time, but also how we eat, which has significantly changed over time and continues to change. So if we jump back in history, right, and we listen to the historians and the archeologists, they're gonna tell us that humanity, when it really begins to emerge as humanity, right, and they're telling of the story, we gather and eat simply by nomadically going around and following the food, if you will, right? We're hunters and gatherers at that point. So they, you pick uh, whatever nuts and berries and grains you may be able to find, uh, but a large part of the diet also would have been meat at that point. But it would have been not the big game necessarily, like a deer, because at this point, right, if you kill a deer, uh, you're probably not going to be able to consume it all and you have no way to really store it. So there tended to be much more uh, a killing of rabbits, squirrels, the smaller kind of animals that you could consume in one meal, right? One of the big differences that begins to take place is when fire shows up on the scene and people start cooking their meals. Here's how that changes what we do. One, it lets calories out, right? So even in terms of vegetable consumption, vegetables become more digestible and the nutrients in some of them become more consumable when they're cooked. So when we start gathering and now cooking in a pot of water and eating those vegetables, all of a sudden we're getting more calories and nutrients out of them. And there's at least one uh, historian biologist who would argue that this really marks the beginning of human history in the sense that our brains begin to develop because we're getting more calories and not spending the whole day chasing animals and gathering food. Now we begin to open up into other kinds of activities, right? Because we have time to do it at that point. So on one hand, fire represents this kind of opening up and availability of calories. But on the other hand, it also changes how we eat. Because if you think of the nomadic tribe who would be out gathering the food, how many fires are they going to build? Probably not an individual fire for each kind of family group. Instead, they tended to build one big fire in the middle which they would share to cook their food over, right? 
So now what results is that is there's a gathering to gather to eat. What do you do as you're waiting for the food to cook? Lo and behold, you begin to talk to one another, right? You begin to recount about the hunt that you had that day or the hunt that you're going to have the next day, right? And so these stories and sharing that begin to take place begin to bind together the human community in a different way around the meal. So now it becomes not just hunting, hunting and gathering, right, and eating on the run, as it were, but each day begins to be punctuated by the sharing of a meal together where you're now doing some experimenting with cooking, sitting down, talking about what you like and don't like, and how you're going to get more of it at that point, right? So, as I said, uh, somebody like Rangham wants to make this argument that, lo and behold, this is kind of where human history really starts to look human, is around the meal. And the rituals that begin to come into place at that point quickly begin to shape the next generation. Uh, you see quickly, uh, in their telling of the history, how impactful the developing of habits and rituals become. Because it's not just the adults sitting around the fire, obviously, but now it's the children too. And so the new practices that are developing get passed on relatively quickly. And we know the opposite side of that to be true too, which is one of, uh, at least one of my fears about what's happening today, is that if you skip one generation in terms of the practice of the ritual, a whole previous generations of knowledge gets lost, right? Uh, here's a quick example. My wife and I, we go to a, a small village in South Africa every year. And for the longest time, right, they were a fairly agrarian village. They would each have their own gardens that they raised their food in. Uh, several years ago, uh, the government stepped in and trying to alleviate poverty, a good thing, began to send checks, right, or put money in the accounts of the people in the village. One of the results of that is, instead of growing their own food, they began to go and buy cornmeal, right, to make their, their staple, which is called pop. It's a kind of uh, grits, if you will, right? And that now makes up something like 80% of their diet. So there's this huge issue of diabetes in this village because 80% of their diet is this starchy uh, grain at this point. So when we went back in a few years ago and we started talking about gardening, they were like, oh yeah, our grandparents used to have gardens, but we don't know how to do it anymore. It took one generation, right, of losing the knowledge and the rituals to have it lost nearly completely. Uh, obviously, you can reteach and it can come back, but it, uh, transferring that to our society, if we stop treating food a different way, if we step away from the rituals that have traditionally been associated with food, it's not easy to pick it back up. And you know that in terms of cooking. The number of students I have now in college who don't know anything about cooking uh, it, it is a large, large percentage of them because they simply didn't grow up in homes where cooking took place. Yeah, the, all the foods were brought in or bought, and yeah, they, may, they still know about the Thanksgiving meal and the feast or something that may take place. But in terms of the daily habit of providing and putting food on the table, 
It's unknown. And they're interested in it. Many of them are interested in it. But it's work, right? It's a kind of re-education that has to take place at that point. Questions so far? Anything you want to dig into a little more? Diabetes was not present before that? Uh, not to the extent that it was now. Yeah. So diabetes and blood pressure, the good Western diseases, right, have kind of tracked with the change in diet. Right. Yeah, I got a really, a really uh, uh, telling statistic come up, telling you how bad that has become. But I'll give you, since you brought it up, I'll give it to you now. It, it, it just shocked me that somewhere now, uh, around 30% of meals in the U.S. are consumed at the couch, and over 20% of meals are consumed in the bedroom now. That is, less than 50% are consumed at a table anymore. And then when you add to that the, the number of meals that are consumed at a desk at this point, which uh, COVID has changed this a little bit, but it was well over 60% of during the workday meals were being consumed at the desk. That changes a lot of different dynamics going on at that point. So somewhere about 10,000 years ago, according to historians, agriculture starts to develop, right? And the best explanation for why it takes place is that there seems to be a, a decline in the available food in the areas where it took place. So hunting and gathering became more difficult, right? Part of that's climate that takes place uh, and the growth of population. But what, what seems to be fairly evident is no culture moves to agriculture kind of just at a whim, willingly, but it's kind of forced upon them by the circumstances. So for instance, one place that agriculture starts growing is in Mexico. And you can think about Mexico with the warm, dry temperatures, and all of a sudden it becomes more difficult to find the food. Uh, at the same time, in North America, the native tribes stayed hunters and gatherers until uh, encountering the Europeans, right? Because it was so prevalent, the kind of food that they could get access to. The remarkable thing with that is uh, that once agriculture starts to take place, civilization itself blossoms and takes off because it becomes much more concentrated. So there are 11 different places in the world around 10,000 years ago that it starts to show up. A lot of them are kind of across the Mediterranean into Israel, into uh, the Fertile Crescent, right? Iran and Iraq. There's some in China, there's some in Africa and South Central America. The one we kind of know most about uh, and probably took place earliest was in uh, the Tigris Valley, right, in, in terms of the Fertile Crescent. And what we see taking place there in terms of agriculture is the growing of grain for the most part, right? So wheat shows up really early. They do start doing some livestock too and domestication of animals relatively early. 
necessarily attached to that, culturally speaking, is not just growing the food, but they also learn how to store it, right? So we, we have evidence of clay jars in which wheat and other grains were stored uh, you know, over a long period of time. If you think about the story of Joseph in Egypt, the same kind of thing was taking place. What this does, right, is it evens out the supply, and so you don't have to necessarily always be looking for food. If you're growing your own, you can have an abundant year as long as you have enough rain, and then you can harvest it and keep it for coming years when you may not have the rain. So uh, lots of the food that we still eat, right, shows up relatively early on in terms of, I said, the grains, things like lentils, leek, garlic, I, uh, strangely for me, lettuce shows up really early in kind of Persia, which goes against my argument against salads, but you know, oh well. <laughs> Meat sources early on, uh, fish are dominant, right? Because a lot of these places either have rivers or oceans or lakes that they can go to for it. And as I said, it still tends to be the small kind of animal that they're harvesting because they don't have refrigeration. So it's a matter of eating it that day uh, kind of thing. And, and smoking hasn't really developed yet at that point either. Um, one of the things that's interesting uh, as this kind of agriculture starts taking place is it starts to really also develop along the trade lines that take place. And so across that kind, of, that kind of segment, right, that latitude, longitude, latitude, longitude. No, it's latitude, it goes this way. Across the latitudes, <laughs> right, because the climate stays fairly familiar, there's an exchange of plants that begins to take place relatively quickly along the, what eventually become the kind of trade routes. So there's an exchange of agricultural practices that, that start that don't go north or south for quite some time. In fact, it's not well into uh, the late medieval period where Europe actually becomes a kind of agricultural center. It's, uh, if you know anything kind of about climatology, right, Europe gets a little bit warmer as the medieval period goes on, and that opens up the possibilities of agriculture in that part of the world. But if you look into Viking culture or kind of early European culture, it tended to be really kind of meat-based at that point. Yeah, questions for? With agriculture then developing, right, and being centralized, it immediately gets attached to a kind of cultural powers. So obviously with nomads, you can kind of, you know, uh, be limited in terms of the size of the tribe because you're always on the move and uh, you can't be too many of you because the resources of one particular area can only feed so many. But now that you've kind of gained control of food production, it allows for villages to transition into cities. Right? And so you get a much greater a concentration. And so you begin to get uh, power, as I said, attached to agriculture. You have the centralization of food production and of food storage that takes place, right? At that point. And getting attached now to the power of the culture is the military presence that can flow out of that. 
Because if you think again about how a military would have operated before this, they would have had to find enough food on their own if they were going to leave their origin and go out and try to conquer some other place. But now all of a sudden you get supply lines developing, right? And as far as you can supply the food is how far your troops can go. And if you think about the negative side of that, food now becomes part of the strategy as a weapon. So that how are you going to conquer a city? Well, oftentimes what you did was to surround it and cut off any of its food supply, right? And if you could starve people out, then they become compliant fairly quickly. So if you think about you know, everything from St. Petersburg in the Second World War back to Alexander the Great, this was a well-known strategy that food supply and the control of the food supply becomes a way to control the people. So agriculture and power get linked together culturally relatively quickly uh, at that point. Uh, it's always interesting to me that if you know, again, the history of Alexander the Great, when they came and surrounded this village, Alexander referred to himself as the god of life and death, right? And the offer that he would make to the village is choose life or choose death, which meant either allow us to rule you or we're going to wipe you out, right? We're going to starve, starve you to death. So once a village would choose life, what did he offer them almost immediately? Bread, right? Which is really interesting kind of projecting forward to think about when Jesus now uses bread in terms of the communion table, He's offering a different empire, right? He's offering a different vision of power that he's not simply saying, uh, here's life or death militarily, but now this bread points beyond just this life to the eternal life at that point. I'm not going to give too much of that away. We'll wait till next week to really... But he's clearly, Jesus is clearly picking upon cultural symbols and practices, right? that people would have understood at that point in time because it was being enacted politically and militarily around them. Still remains the case today, right, that, that uh, famine is not the number one reason for lack of food in the world. Uh, it tends to be politically how it gets distributed. So if you, uh, again, have the power to hold the food and control it, you have incredible power over a people. Jumping forward a little bit now into the Roman Empire, right? So we're, we're now into the ADs at this point. You see this vast expansion that takes place because trade routes have opened up at this point, right? So uh, as the Roman Empire expands over a lot of the known Western world at that point, it allows for the flow of different means of agriculture and agricultural products. One of the biggest one being spices. So if you've just simply eaten your leek and your uh, grains at this point, now all of a sudden uh, you can put some cinnamon on stuff. And so it becomes very popular at this point to start experimenting with food. And there's the increase of meats, too, because 
you begin to see animals domesticated from different places uh, throughout the Roman Empire at that point. And, and now dining becomes, in a way, eating becomes the highest form of civilization for these guys, right? And you see how quickly food and agriculture gets associated with kind of cultural power again, because one of the messages that was clearly sent in the Roman Empire is, if I have the best spices in the exotic meats, guess which class I belong to? Not the lower class, right? I belong to the upper class. And so the way in which I showed my cultural status to you was by the par dinner party that I threw. What kind of meat, what kind of drink, especially what kind of spicing do I put on my food that reveals to you that I have access to the best of the world, right? And so uh, the way you ate and drank revealed your status in life. Clearly, if you're down here at the slave level, right, the mere worker level, you're still just barely getting enough to eat. You get a handful of grains, you get a little bit of meat maybe on certain days. But if you're among the rich, you're probably eating meat every day and you're having it spiced with all these kind of exotic spices. And at this point, we really start to see the rituals develop around eating, right? Because it became very important where you sat even if you were invited to the party, right? So again, it picks up on New Testament, uh, you know, at the right hand, the seat of honor. Now all of a sudden, that, that's, that's being replicated uh, in terms of the feast. If you're a special person, if you're significant, I want to make sure I impress you. I want you right next to me to make sure you have the best of what I have at that point. If you barely get in the door, then maybe you get some fruit punch at the back or something, but you're not really going to be a participant at that point. The idea of laying down and eating is a strange one too, right? <laughs> but it makes sense, right? You're, you don't have the chairs, I guess, in the same way. But it was also this posture of leisure that you took, that you were not a worker. Uh, the slaves are gonna be the people bringing your food and dropping it in your mouth or whatever for you, that you were of such status that you could just kind of lay there, take in the entertainment and eat at the same time. Huh, all of a sudden, we're eating in the bedroom again. Uh-oh, uh -oh. here comes a question. Okay. Yeah, probably the dynamic in the Roman Empire is a little different because at the bottom level, it's a matter of are you getting enough calories to do the work because you're considered dispensable in a way at that point. But there is this dynamic of uh, 
the luxurious not always being the nutritious uh, at that point. Yeah, yep. So as I said, the rituals start to development at this point, especially as we think about the banquets and food becomes a way to distinguish class, but now the habits surrounding it, and we begin to see the development of silverware, tableware, slowly taking place. Now, uh, chopsticks had existed in China for a long time before this, right? Uh, And it it had a slightly different purpose probably in the Chinese culture at this point. But in terms of the Roman Empire and subsequently, you begin to see people, instead of simply grabbing their food or using bread or some grains to sop it up, now all of a sudden you begin to see, well, first the use of the knife to cut off some of the meat that you may have, but then you begin to see things like spoons and forks uh, being used. And again, you can see the class differentiation in this because if you're of the lower class, chances are that you're not going to have forks and knives and utensils to eat with, right? You're going to continue to be the slob who eats with their fingers. But the upper class is going to be the refined, civilized top of humanity who now not only have the utensils, but they began to think about how to use them, which forks to use, in what order, how to eat with it, and table manners become part of what it means to be civilized, right? That you eat in a certain way. One of the effects of it, again, is the slowing down of the meal. So uh, Patrick Deneen, who teaches political science uh, at Notre Dame, has this great article about how the formation of table habits actually leads in development of what it means to be human. Because now the meal becomes uh, even more a focal point in terms of a significant amount of time in a day spent taking the time to eat, eating courses, and all of those allow for then more time being spent together and having conversation. And a good table, especially at a banquet, would be set so that you're talking to the right people, right? That you're exchanging the cultural stories that need to keep going. So it's not just utensils were not just utilitarian. It's not how do I eat better, not how do I eat faster, but it's how do I eat in a more civilized, more human way at that point. And you see increasingly right in the West then, uh, the development of the use of utensils. You see it similarly in in U.S. history, uh, though in a way, as the settlers came, it was a reset button, right? That we went back in some ways to living on the frontier, using minimal utensils for a while until we started to build households that had some kind of sustaining power to them. But we still think of in these kind of ways, right? Who are the most kind of civilized people? Well, one way that's indicated is by how they use their eating utensils. Do they know? You see this joke played out all the time in movies and TVs. Do I know which fork to use when? Well, yeah. Or you think about this in terms of a job interview. Uh, If you're taken out to lunch for a job interview, one of the ways in which you're probably going to be measured is how you eat your food. 
do you salt your food before you taste it, right? Is, is used as a judgment. One of the problems that we have, again, among uh, students is because they have so little in terms of training of table that the idea of a meal, uh, a formal meal, is utterly intimidating to them. A few years ago, we, we tried this uh, food services one night. We wanted to have a family-style dinner, right, where you had to sit down. It was, you had to come for an hour. You had to sign up, I think, for an hour meal together, and it was going to be served family-style passing. And there was going to be some education about kind of uh, table manners. What was really surprising to me, uh, though I guess it shouldn't have been, is somewhere over 60% of the students that night, they swiped in to eat, and when they saw what was going to be required of them, they left. They would rather not eat than sit down in the formal setting. Uh, I had one student several years ago who, when I was teaching a food class, uh, halfway through the class, she confessed she had never eaten a meal with her parents. What she meant by that was they always sat, got TV dinners and sat down on the couch in front of the TV. They had never actually gathered around a table and eaten together, which was amazing, right? Because when she came to, to Cornerstone, her re, uh, the result of that was that she could not eat in the cafeteria. She would get her food and go sit in her car by herself because it was just too intimidating to think about what are the expectations attached to eating together at that point. Early medieval, uh, there's a breakdown of trade and things kind of go regressively for a while. You hit the Renaissance, we pick back up with the trade routes, right? And you move into anticipating the modern world. Fact at this point, spices become so uh, available that they lose their exotic nature and the price attached to them. Now the peasants are eating with spices. Nutmeg arrives in Holland and is getting put on everything at that point. <laughs> when that happens, ironically, the rich class actually stops using spices because it no longer distinguishes them. And they, they start doing other kind of creative stuff with their meals. So there's always this interchange that's going on. Food in small America, right, as we talked about a little, is in terms of the ideal family farm, as Jefferson imagined it. You could grow what you needed. You know, you had a hog or two, maybe a cow, some chickens, and then you had your vegetable garden that you could uh, store enough food uh, for the winter. The last kind of movement, right, is into this efficiency that, that begins 1950s or so, where there's the call for the Green Revolution where the popula world population is becoming such that there's an understanding that there needs to be a vast increase in the amount of food uh, that we produce. And so efficiency becomes the dominant kind of characteristic of food production. So you get monocultures being produced, right? Increased activity in term or increased technology to do the farming at that point. And we do actually create much more food, grow much more food, with the arrival of things like fertilizer, right, that take place at that point. One of these efficiencies is, right, cheap, dense calories. And one of the ways in which we get cheap, dense calories is by processing one of these monocultural products, 
Uh, one of the dominant ones, obviously, is corn that takes place. So now, all of a sudden, we, we have corn showing up in something like 80% of uh, the stuff that you can find in a grocery store, from corn syrup to processed corn meal. And you have cheap dense calories, uh, which is good to have calories, but the way the calories come becomes really problematic, right? And so you get this increase of fat at one point, and we say that fat's the problem, so we got a rebalancing the processing of the food. And so now we move to yogurt that's fat-free, but to still have the flavor of the processed food, what do you have to do? You have to increase the sugar, right? So now if you pick up one of those little things of yogurt, you have something like 31 grams of sugar in it. And so even though we have more food, it tends to be much more highly processed at this point. And in processing it, you tend to lose the flavor, the flavor and nutrition. And now what do you do? You've got to restore that through the balancing of fat, sugar, and salt that takes place. Yeah? And you have to add vitamins to it. You have to add other kind of nutrients to it. So we still right, have expanded amazingly the amount of food that we produce. But the quality of the food becomes significantly different than it would have been at that point. There's three trends, right, that have taken place. Well, more than three, but here's three significant ones. One is where we're eating at. So 30% said they eat in the couch, 17% in the bedroom of their meals. Increasingly among younger people, there's this idea of biohacking, right? Biohacking is the idea that there are these perfect foods out there that uh, if you eat the right combination of that food, it's going to give you the right energy. Uh, students today are much more conscious about what they eat, not necessarily in terms of organic, some of them are, but in terms of am I eating the right combination of fat, sugar, etc to get top performance, right? Especially if you're an athlete at this point, you're trying to manipulate your body to produce more and be more efficient by what you put in, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it tends to rely upon, again, highly processed nutrients at that point. There's also been the return of fasting, right? But it's a different sense of fasting now. It's the, uh, what's it called, the intermittent fasting. So if you only eat two meals a day now as a way to try to lose weight, which uh, I admit to doing, I don't know how successful it has been. But then my doctor says to me, oh, you're fasting. And it's like, oh, is that what I'm doing? I thought I was just eating two meals. But the idea uh, increasingly, right, at the pop culture level is the longer you can go between eating, your body goes into a certain kind of process, uh, processing of the energy, and it has positive effects to it. We're going to talk much more about fasting, but that's one way in which it shows up. All right. We only have a few minutes here. But let's get to the biblical account. In the Genesis account, right, early on, uh, Adam and Eve are told in 29 what they're supposed to be eating, right? At least what's permissible to them at this point where they're instructed that every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, those will be yours for food. 
Uh, some people have made the argument, right, this is a kind of vegetarian diet that's prescribed early on. Uh, one counter to that is in 26 of Genesis 1. The word for uh, livestock shows up already. Now, how much you can imply from the distinction between animals in general and now livestock in particular, right, we can do some conjecture about. But there's at least this distinction that's being made of animals that are kind of being raised for human consumption versus just wild animals at this point. So it seems already in Genesis, there's this idea of agriculture as present in the very giving of creation order itself, right? Uh, even though they're told at this point that you can roam and you can find trees, you can find fruits uh, to eat, already implied before the fall takes place is this idea of a kind of work that humanity is supposed to be doing in terms of securing their food at that point. Now, it's, it's not the developed agriculture that we see later, but there's some kind of human activity that's tied to the acquiring of their food, right? Early on, I think you can say this, uh, that clearly food and eating are part of the good creation. And already in the creation order itself, you see food not just as nutrition, but also as pleasure giving, right? So you don't just have manna in the garden, one kind of thing, but it's opened up already into this kind of panoply of flavors of possibility. It's one of the things I always kind of, uh, that strikes me, right, that we probably don't pay enough attention to is, is the creativity of God in terms of the vast number of flavors that are out there that he's kind of invited us to play with, right? To, to be innovative with, to cook with. And we're constantly opening up kind of new experiences because of the way we play with the flavors that are going on. And that's what I mean by food being both kind of gift and call in Genesis. It's clearly given from the very beginning we understand this kind of sense of dependence upon God for our food. That's reminded, we're reminded over and over again that we don't make it grow, right? You gotta pray for the rain, you have to pray for the harvest, etc. But there's not just this gift side of it, but there's this human interaction with it that allows us to kind of um, be the co-rulers that we're invited to be in Genesis. So we can be creative in the way in which we grow them. We can be creative in the way in which we cook with them. And we can be creative in the way in which we enjoy them, right, with one another and serve them. So written in the very creation order itself, I think, is this idea of food as being kind of essential to the human experience, including the human experience of the goodness of God at that point. Uh, we'll end here for this week. You all know the effects of the fall on this, right? That now all of a sudden uh, we've been charged with growing and gathering our food, but instead of simply being part of our daily existence where we experience pleasure, we experience the curse of it. Though strangely, this gives my wife pleasure too. Because my wife likes nothing better than to weed the garden. And so she, if those thorns and weeds show up, she's out there pulling them up instantaneously.
And I, I am a less human because, lesser of a human in her eyes, because I don't do nearly as good a job as I should at this point. But you see the way in which the curse is exercised now is now all of a sudden there's this kind of toil and the sweat of your brow that are, that's associated with the gathering of uh, the food and the production of the food. And I think in some ways you can already anticipate, right, this idea that we talked about before of power now being attached to food and food production. That, you know, uh, once you introduce a kind of notion of limit and work to it, the people who do it well and efficiently can use it in a way against those who don't have it. And that's going to get addressed over and over in the Old Testament, as we'll see next time. So I'll stop there. We have time for maybe one last question if you want. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the processed food tends to be food, uh, right, that's uh, industrially manipulated in some, in some way where it's chopped up, it's cooked, it's chopped up, and sometimes it's only part of it that gets extracted that's then used in the production at that point, where uh, at least early on, right, uh, you used as much of the, the plant or the animal to eat as you could possibly use because it was considered relatively scarce at that point. So it's, it's more the industrial processing for the sake of efficiency versus the kind of treating the food as uh, a gift to be used in a wise way. Thank you for joining us for Growing You. Join us next session as we continue with Dr. Matt Bonzo. We will delve deeper into scripture and how food, eating, and our eating practices connect with our experience of communion at the Lord's table.